Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Brights. Thank you for listening. George Doss Green knows how to tell a great story. The American novelist is also founder of the phenomenal storytelling organization, The Moth. In the preface to Green's recent novel, he writes... Savannah may appear to be some town out of a fable, with its vine flowers and cast-iron balconies and fairy turrets, but truly it rests upon a bed of history so vile that no novelist could invent it. Later this hour, we'll listen back to my interview with the author about his book, the Kingdoms of Savannah. First, a photographer examines another shameful example of Georgia history. Southern Rights, a new exhibition at the Atlantic Contemporary, spotlights segregated proms in South Georgia. The photos were not taken in the 1950s, They date from the early to mid-2000s. The works on view are by photographer and filmmaker Jillian Laub and have been featured in other forms, including a book and a documentary, which aired on HBO in 2015. Jillian Laub joins me now via Zoom to talk more about her experience documenting race over the last two decades. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. How did you first hear about Mount Vernon, Georgia, and the segregated proms there? So back in 2002, I was starting out as a young freelance photographer. And I worked for many publications, one being Spin Magazine. And the editor at Spin Magazine reached out to me and said, oh my goodness, I just received a letter, a handwritten note from a student in Montgomery County, Georgia, begging us. You know, it was, it was really a cry for help saying, please come to my community. I can't take my boyfriend to the prom because he's black, I'm white. They're still having segregated proms in my town. Please come and tell this story. 
So that's how we first heard about it through, her name is Anna Rich Chafin, who, who wrote the original letter. Now, she had boycotted the prom and she when we received the letter, the segregated proms had since passed, but the next segregated event was homecoming. So we went down to, from New York, from Georgia in 2002 to document the Montgomery County segregated homecomings in 2002. Mm. Being a New Yorker, living in a part of the country that certainly it was a different world from small town Georgia. What was it like for you to navigate and document this new territory? Well, it was shocking. And then I felt, wow, I'm really naive that, you know, look, racism is everywhere in our country. It's obviously in New York as well. But this type of, you know, overt racism I had never experienced and I didn't know still existed, really. You know, I thought that that was what we studied. <laughs> so it was it was quite shocking, but it also felt there was such dissonance because at the same time, it was a really friendly town and it seemed from on the surface, like it was very mixed and kind of like an idyllic, beautiful Southern town. So, so it was just so contradictory to the fact that they were actually segregating by race. And it seemed from the outside that People were walking around happy and okay with it. So that's when I knew I had to dig deeper and why I really kept going back and and wanted to really get to know this community better. Yeah. Why did you return to Montgomery County in 2008? Well, I had, in 2002, I had begun a project in the Middle East. So I was... I was really in the Middle East for five years. During that project, I realized, oh my goodness, I'm, you know, on the other side of the world, but there is something so profoundly not right going on in my own backyard that when I'm when I come back, I, I have to really investigate this. So in 2008, I called the school. You know, I, I didn't know Anna the person I kept in touch with was Anna, the student who originally wrote me the letter, and she had since moved away to Atlanta with her boyfriend. So I didn't know anyone there, and I didn't know if the proms were still segregated. So I called the school and I asked when the when their proms were, and they said, oh, which one? The white folks prom is this weekend, and the black folks prom is in two weeks. So there was my answer. Unbelievable. And and I knew I just had to I had to go down and and continue this, really start and continue this work. And that's when I called the New York Times Magazine, who I also worked for as a freelancer, and told them. And that's when they commissioned me to to do that. So the schools were integrated, but not their dances. The schools integrated in the 70s, but the proms were not integrated until 2010. Okay. Two things go through my mind. First, Mm -hmm. how did they get away with it when the schools, by law, were integrated? And the administration, the teachers, the parents who created these separate events. 
Well, it's interesting because when I talked to, I talked to a few crossover teachers from the seventies and they said they began as separate events because, well, you know, when, when you're voting in the ballot, there was literally a column for a white queen and a black queen. And at first the teachers were doing it in a way that they wanted it to be fair. And it was originally done, as I was told, in a democratic way and a fair way. They didn't want there always to be the winner to be white. So they were like, okay, we will always have a white and a black queen when we integrate. That was their way of trying to make the integration go smoothly. But then they kept up this tradition, which they called it. And they were able to because the school would hold the the prom and they discovered that none of the white students would come to the prom. They would have their own separate private prom. Hmm. So then the schools just opted out and stopped being involved in the organizing of the prom. So the reason why it wasn't illegal is because the proms were essentially private Ah. and it would so happen that the white parents would pay for the the white prom and and the the black students said that they had to you know spend many months fundraising for the the prom their prom Jillian what were some responses you received from the black prom goers and the white students you talked with? Well, I felt very welcomed with open arms to the to the Black proms that I attended. And, you know, I think that there was such injustice going on because these kids went to school together, essentially from when they were, you know, kindergarten. So they knew and felt it was really wrong. In fact, I remember in 2009, when I was with a lot of the black student, the graduating black students of, of that year, they went to see the night before their classmates who were white, who were having the prom at the exact same, the Vidalia Community Center. And they were asked to leave after the father-daughter dance. They were actually asked to leave and the door was slammed shut in their face. So when I witnessed that firsthand of how painful and awful that was and how they felt, Ugh. it was shocking. And and so I think that a lot of the Black students were felt hurt, but they were also scared to speak out. You know, they didn't know what repercussions would come of it. And in 2009, they wanted to speak, but they also asked me to make sure that it wasn't published before they graduated. I'm just saying 2009 is outstanding. We had a Black first family in the White House. We did. We did. It was was quite shocking. And on the other hand, I was not very welcome by the white community. You know, it was interesting because I'm white. So at first I, they thought, you know, I was a safe person to talk to, but then they, when they realized this was the story I was doing and I was focusing on the racial situation in the town, all doors closed on me. And I was, you know, chased out of town many, many of times. You mentioned the crossover teachers who called them. 
did you try to interview the principal about the segregated dances? Yes. The years that I was there while the proms were segregated, the principal in the school wanted nothing to do with me and would not participate. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with photographer and filmmaker Jillian Laub. So after these photos appeared in the New York Times magazine in 2009, what were some of the responses to the story? Well, there was national outrage, which I'm happy about because it it really forced them to, to integrate the proms. Hmm. And what went through your mind after learning that your photos were the catalyst for integrating the prom the following year? You know, I have to say that it was kind of unbelievable, really. And and it really enforced my belief that photography and visual activism and and storytelling can really help make a change. Please tell us why you wanted the title of the exhibition to be Southern Rights, spelled R-I-T-E-S. I, I mean, it seemed, it seemed so, you know, the plan words and rites and rituals. I mean, this was all about the rites and rituals. Something clicked, and I, that came to my, when I was, searching for a title it just that came to me and it it just felt so right it's very powerful no pun intended <laughs> <laughs> absolutely speaking of powerful i realize this is not easy to answer but which photos do you find the most moving oh goodness that is a hard question to answer I have attachments to so many of the photographs. It's it's truly, truly, truly hard for me to choose. I think for me, there's something about the joy in, there, there's a picture that I took on the dance floor in 2011, and there's just complete and utter joy that the students, you know, they're just dancing. And it's like, it seems like such a normal a picture of teenagers dancing. But to me, it's so much more loaded than that because it's like, this is what was being prevented for so many years, what seems so normal. And I don't want to say mundane because joy is not mundane, but something that just seems so common was forbidden. So I think that that photo of the students dancing on the dance floor in 2011 felt symbolic and the the prom prince and princess their first dance you know that's why also why I I made that the cover of the book because there's there's a tension there mm. this series of photos later became the subject of a documentary on HBO which you directed would you describe telling this story through the medium of film after documenting the photos? Yeah, so I wasn't setting out to make a film, but 
look, I knew the proms were a symptom of something much larger in this town. And I felt like the pictures, although I still wholeheartedly believe in, in a still photograph telling, being able to tell a whole story, there was something about having so many conversations with people and interviewing people that I felt like a film even though I didn't know how to make a film, was, <laughs> was the way to convey this nuanced and complicated story. So I really kind of by trial and error just started to figure out and teach myself sound and how to shoot video the way I was shooting my still images. And it took a while. It was, it was a hard transition but I started really filming around town and it wasn't just about the proms. Then something tragic happened when I started filming. There was a racial, a racial killing in the town. So the film ended up really becoming about that case. And it was, it was, I was telling the story about race now through the the tragic killing of Justin Patterson, who was somebody who, whose family I knew from photographing the proms. Since the exhibition has been on view at the Atlanta Contemporary, have any of the subjects of your photographs contacted you? Oh, yes. We had a wonderful night. So many of the subjects who are in the photos came to the opening and saw themselves hanging on the walls. And it was such an emotional, moving evening. It was, and then they came back again. And it's, I've been in touch throughout the years with a lot of the people in the photographs and I follow how their lives are unfolding. And, and it was just really incredible to witness them seeing themselves on the walls. It was very powerful. Though Atlanta is much different, worlds apart from small town South Georgia. But a short drive away. <laughs> no kidding. What is it, 140 miles? About, yeah. Yeah. Have you any thoughts about reactions to this show in our area other than those joyous responses from subjects who gathered for the opening? I think it's it can be sobering because I think a lot of people in Atlanta, you know, just, it is amazing to hear local people in Atlanta, you know, their shock that this was happening just in their own backyards. <laughs> you know, it's, it's sobering and... I think it's hard to reckon with that this was still happening very close by. Photographer and filmmaker Jillian Laub. Her new exhibition, Southern Rights, is on view at the Atlanta Contemporary through January 8th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, coastal Georgia takes the spotlight in George Dawes Green's novel, The Kingdoms of Savannah. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Soon after you open the cover of The Kingdoms of Savannah, the new novel by George Dawes Green, there appears a note on history which begins, Savannah may appear to be some town out of a fable, with its vine flowers and cast-iron balconies and fairy turrets. But truly, it rests upon a bed of history so vile that no novelist could invent it. That history informs Green's story about the Musgrove family and crimes they encounter. You may also know the author for the Moth, storytelling organization he founded 25 years ago. George Dawes Green joins us now via Zoom to discuss his new book, Welcome to City Lights. Oh, I'm so glad to be here, Lois. In the prologue, we meet Luke and Stoney. Why are these characters important? Stoney is really the center of this book because it's a book about a woman who has a particular deep, rather mysterious passion, a connection for something she calls the kingdom where she thinks that she lives. So there are two main mysteries in this book. One is the question of who kills Luke and why? and this innocent, homeless young man who burns to death. And it looks like it's arson and a rich real estate developer was just torching one of his buildings and uh, Luke the Vagabond happened to be sleeping there. But as the novel goes on, that mystery deepens and we're not certain that the initial explanation is true. But then there's this other mystery. What is Stoney's kingdom? And why is she so obsessed with it? And is it real? Is it something she's just imagining in her mind? Or, is, or does it have some commentant in reality? I don't know. So, hmm. uh, so those are the two early characters that we meet. Luke's murder is described as a Savannah type of murder. What does that mean? <laughs> well, Morgana Musgrove, my protagonist, calls it a Savannah type of murder. Every now and then in Savannah and uh, the area around Savannah, 
there are these incredibly brutal murders where the butcher's bill is astonishingly high. And they're just murders usually committed by a man, usually a stupid man who has some kind of a great confidence in himself, believes that he is invulnerable, and he commits a crime, and then that leads to a cover-up, um, and the cover-up means there have to be more crimes, and then and then you just sort of get this spiraling out of horror. And this happens in Savannah often. And one of the examples that Morgana refers to is a bludgeoning that took place in uh, Brunswick, which is about an hour south of Savannah. And it really took place about 10 years ago. Guy Heinz murdered his family in a trailer. He bludgeoned them to death, one after the other until he had murdered eight of them. And to this day, no one really understands what happened in that trailer, but clearly there was an argument. Guy Hines was selling methamphetamine. One of his brothers, you know, was arguing with him and then other family members started arguing. Somehow or another, he winds up bludgeoning eight people. I don't know how one does that. Mm. Well, you further write about Savannah as, quote, a pit of vipers, (laughs) a great city that sets its alcoholics loose on St. Patrick's Day, and take issue with its ghost tours, vivid descriptions of flaws about this city, George. Is the portrayal of Savannah in this novel meant as a corrective? Uh, Absolutely. I am in love with Savannah, and I always have been since I was a little boy. First of all, it is the most beautiful city in the country to me, without question. I mean, I, I don't know. I've never been to Des Moines, Iowa. So, I mean, there may be other cities. I, I just think Savannah is gorgeous. It's filled with fascinating people. You know, the other thing that I really love about Savannah is it's so compact. For a city that has that many interesting worlds, it's really very, very small. You know, you can stroll across the city in, you know, just a few hours from one end to the other. And yet there are all these kingdoms within Savannah, all these different realms. There's the enclave of the very wealthy, and there are Black communities that have really been there for 200 years. And there's you know, a gay community, there's an artist community, there are homeless encampments all around the city. And because they're all so cheek by jowl, it just makes it for a fascinating place. So I love the city. I do think that it rests upon a bed of evil. And the history is something that we have to deal with, we have to be open about. And I don't think that we have been particularly open about uh, the horror of Savannah's history. But I do believe that the city is getting better and better all the time. And I'm madly in love with it and always will be. (laughs) But indeed, the importance of taking in the beauty of those gorgeous, impeccably well-planned city squares and all of the lush foliage must coexist with the fact that all of this was built upon enslavement. Yeah, 
And that's something that uh, we don't want to do. So when I talk about the ghost tours, I don't mind ghost tours. You know, I think it's fun to tell ghost stories. I grew up with ghost stories. My mother loved to have seances when I was a boy, really. I love all that. What bothers me and what I think is deeply wrong is that the ghost tours and most of the tours in Savannah evade the real darkness of Savannah's history. I mean, just to give you an example, when Georgia was founded, you know, Savannah was founded in 1743 by James Oglethorpe and slavery was prohibited. Oglethorpe was an abolitionist and the trustees were abolitionists. And so Savannah, unlike its neighboring colonies, the citizens of Savannah had to campaign for slavery. So they had to give sermons on what they called the virtues of slavery. And so there's this terrible, horrible hypocrisy from the very founding of the colony, that here we had an abolitionist colony and it took less than 10 years to throw Oglethorpe out, to throw the trustees out and to do what the white colonists dreamed of, which was to establish a regime of um, slavery. So I think we have that, that particular horror right at the very root of Savannah's history. And it, it got worse from there. <laughs> well, you do give credit to Oglethorpe for his enlightened thinking, and you call him a jewel of a man and the last <laughs> great citizen of Savannah. No, he's incredible. Oglethorpe, well, first of all, he had always been an adventurer. He was a great raconteur, by the way. Boswell, in his Life of Johnson, writes about Oglethorpe's stories uh, over and over again. So, of course, that makes him dear to my heart. Yeah, imagine if the mob had been around when Oglethorpe settled on these shores. Oh, Oglethorpe would have been there every night. <laughs> and the other thing that I loved about Oglethorpe is that he got sick of the colonists. He was got sick of their whining. And he moved out of the city and moved into the tent of his friend Tomachichi, the Yamakra Indian chief, and lived there. And you know, he would do the work that he had to do, but he just couldn't stand to be around these whining colonists. So Oglethorpe was a true, um, a great leader with a great plan. He, his design for the city is really second to none. And then it is true that after that, things started to quickly deteriorate. Mm. Please introduce us to members of the Musgrove family. You've already mentioned the matriarch Morgana. Yeah, M Morgana, first of all, um, in her 60s, she owns a great big house in the middle of the Victorian district, this Romanesque revival house. And she is this doyen of Savannah society. And she's also quite mean and particularly mean to her children. She has a terrible mean streak. She has been often on an alcoholic. And she's a very difficult woman, but very, very brilliant. And when she discovers that her husband left her in his will, all of his little 
businesses. So she finds that one of those businesses is a detective agency, which is, you know, a little mostly moribund, but a client approaches her, offers her a great deal of money to work on it, um, investigating this case of murder, the case of the murder of Luke Kitchens. And she, to everyone's surprise, because everyone knows that this horrible real estate developer is the one who did it, Morgana accepts his money and then inveigles the members of her family to come join her in this case. And the members of her family, all of her children and granddaughters are just quite sick of her. She's manipulative. She is, as I said, mean. And they're fed up with her, but nevertheless, she knows how to press these buttons. And she brings in uh, her daughter, Willu, who's a Superior Court judge, and who is connected with a, a particular, I call them the kingdoms of Savannah, the different realms. And here's this, the sort of the legal realm, the courtroom realm. And so she has a lot of information that's useful for Morgana. And so she brings in uh, her son, Ransom, who is kind of a ne'er-do-well, ne'er-do-well, has wound up living at one of the homeless encampments, but is like his mother, pretty smart. And particularly, she brings in her granddaughter, Jack, who is a granddaughter via the marriage of Morgana's daughter. Jack has been ad adopted in the family. She's black and she's fierce activist and fiercely fed up with Savannah society and rather obsessed with notions of justice. And I find her particular journey through this book to be, that was the thing that sort of propelled me through this novel. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. And my guest is the author George Dawes Green. We've been discussing his new novel, The Kingdoms of Savannah. The interracial makeup of the Musgrove family struck me as unusual in terms of their regard for one another. Jack is clearly the favorite granddaughter of Morgana, the Musgrove siblings don't behave in a way that shows racial prejudice. And that extends to the way the family stature is viewed by others in the city. How realistic would this be in Savannah, George? Well, I think it's... I I think it's realistic. Morgana is an enlightened person. And so, as you know, Savannah's a, you know, Savannah's a blue city. There are members of the family who are deeply conservative, but Morgana herself is not. She is a lover of the arts. So I don't think it's unrealistic at all that there, I didn't think that there needed to be any animus against, you know, any racial animus or I, think that it's perfectly understandable that families in Savannah are accepting of, of gay marriages of their siblings. I think that there's strain and that's clear. It's 
you know, it's evident that Morgana is struggling with this new world. But I find her struggle to be fascinating and somewhat inspiring. Yeah, I mean, that aspect of the family is welcome. There are references to seventh and eighth generation Savannians in this story. Would you talk about your depiction of class structure in the novel? Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating in Savannah because there's there's always a turmoil there. The city has new blood all the time. People are moving in now, particularly folks from Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> Lawyers from Atlanta are coming Letting down. that rabble in. <laughs> and buying the houses down there. Folks from New York are coming down. But, you know, they always have. So there's always this sense of turmoil. But what is interesting is that when folks move to Savannah, they've never tended to bring their ethos with them. They sort of leave their ethos at the city gates and they take on the city's ethos. This was particularly interesting to me because in the 1850 census, Savannah was mostly populated by people from either the North or foreigners. And so you'd think, oh, well, that would make it a, you know, an enlightened liberal uh, Yankee style city or an abolitionist city, but not at all. It was um, the folks who came to Savannah, you know, really accepted what they were given. And um, there was no abolitionism in Savannah in the 1850s. I always find that particularly interesting, the way the class system could break down in Savannah, but but it doesn't. You know, when when you go to the to the homeless encampments around the city, you see there's thousands and thousands of people in the city who don't have homes. Um, they're black and white, and there are camps for for their camps for drug addicts. There are all black camps. There are all white camps. There are mixed race camps but there are just so many of these encampments. And then in the middle of the city, you've got these fabulous, fancy, turreted houses where the wealthy live. And the, those two groups, they see each other every day. They pass each other in the squares. They, there's not really much connection between them. Although sometimes the homeless people will work at the rich folks' houses. So I always found when I was at the encampments, that they knew everything about the lives of the rich folks of Savannah. And that I've incorporated into this book. As we learn the backstories of Musgrove family members and read rich descriptions of Savannah's physical beauty, along with its historic monstrousness, the suspense increases. And the thriller comes to an end. George, ultimately, what crimes are you revealing in the kingdoms of Savannah? The crimes of Savannah, they keep uh, boiling up because I think there's, there's some deep streak of selfishness in this city. Just as, I guess, a sense in Savannah that we love wealth and we love wealthy people, and we give them way too much power. Author George Dawes Green, 
more information about his new novel, The Kingdoms of Savannah, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear from the creator of Candle House Collective, a theater company that performs interactive plays over the telephone for an audience of one. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. Author George Dawes Green. More information about his new novel, The Kingdoms of Savannah, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. All through the year, WABE has had fun recording our music series, Sounds Like ATL. Tonight, we invite you to experience it for yourself with music of these talented artists, Raquel Lilly, Taki Nobu, and Ruby Vell and the Sulfonics. That sounds like ATL tonight at 8 on 90.1, and you can see the performance on WABE-TV tonight at 11. Coming up, the premiere of our new series, Speaking of Comedy, today featuring Mike Albanese. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Over the last 18 months, you may have become familiar with our series Speaking of Art and speaking of music. Today we add a new category to our Speaking of collection, and it's meant to make you smile. This is Speaking of Comedy, where we hear from local comedians in their own words. Hi, my name is Mike Albanese, and I am an Atlanta comedian. I first got into stand-up when... I kind of had my life falling apart when I was living in Florida, which is a shocker to find out that somebody's life wasn't doing great in Florida. Uh, I grew up in Gwinnett County, but I moved down there, chased a girl, which always works out perfectly. And uh, a buddy of mine, great comic, still works here in Atlanta as a comedian, Bob Place, had been doing comedy for years. Ever since I've known him, we were in high school, he was doing stand-up. And when things weren't going well for me, got out of a relationship that almost ended in marriage, job was done, it was a whole scenario. I was just like, hey man, I really want to try my hand at this. And uh, I just kind of packed my bags and moved up to Atlanta. And me and him just kind of hit the road and hit the Atlanta comedy scene full force for years. And um, yeah, that was, uh, it was a really fun couple of years. And uh, I think that's what makes Atlanta such a great community, too, is that there's so many opportunities to do stand-up and, and get, get good. Some of my biggest challenges in, the, in uh, the comedy industry have been me. I think I'm my own worst enemy, my own worst critic, but also my self-doubt, anxiety, 
all these things kind of get in my way. Because especially now, like, the world is open to anybody who wants to put anything out there. You don't have to wait for somebody to do it for you. So it's really just, just it's more me getting out of my own way to try to um, continue to move up and become better at comedy, get more people listening to my comedy, so on and so forth. I think my inspiration for most of my material, and I hate the word inspiration for material when it comes to comedy because it just seems so much more grandiose than it really is. But, you know, I, I like to put myself in situations that instinctively I wouldn't want to be in. Nothing like crazy or dangerous necessarily, but like socially, if I'm like, ugh, I don't want to go do that. I don't want to go to this party. I don't want to go to this dinner. I don't want to go, you know, to this event. I stop myself and I go, no, go, because when you're upset or you don't want to be somewhere, you're going to start finding the funny in those moments. And I think that's where my funny comes from, is those moments. Uh, it's like a digital currency. And, um, I didn't mean to leave you out. I didn't mean to leave you out of this. So there's a blockchain. Ugh, I got to go farther back. I'm sorry. You ever, you remember Monopoly? It's just like that. It's just like that. It's fake money in a fake real estate. The metaverse, that shit ain't real either. And you're moving fake cars, Tesla. You're moving them around the thing. And someone's going to go to jail at some point. So that's, that's what crypto is. Just to be a thing. So the bit that I had shared was an off-the-cuff moment that I had. There was an older couple sitting in the front row, and the rest of the crowd was, I mean, 21 if they were a day old. They were all super young. And so as I was going through the night, I just would turn to them and explain some of the more, like, quote, younger terminology. And they got it. I mean, it was I wasn't really explaining anything to them, but it was just fun for everybody. And they were having getting a kick out of it. So I just kept doing it. And then when I was riffing with one girl who said she did something ridiculous in cryptocurrency, she said she was a, a crypto uh, accountant. Um, and then I asked her, how does she get paid? And she goes, oh, I get paid in like America, like in money. And that's why I was like, well, crypto is just an insane idea. If someone who's an accountant for crypto doesn't accept crypto for payment. Anyway, so I started talking to the, to the people in the front row and then it was just a really fun, fun night. I'm super proud that I uh, came from Atlanta uh, doing comedy because Atlanta, you can hide as a comedian in Atlanta and just cut your teeth and fail over and over and over again without really much pressure from like, quote, industry watching you and getting a taste in their mouth for you too soon. I've seen a lot of people that industry gloms onto them real quick for, for whatever reason, whether they, or they had one good joke or they look a certain way or they have one specific point of view and then they get a bunch of opportunities in the industry and then they don't have the chops to keep that up. So I think it's really cool to have started in Atlanta where you can just kind of make the mistakes without like a, a lot at stake. I love involving the crowd in my set when it makes sense. Just like the bit that I had sent in was just off the cuff type of thing that happened during that show, I love it when the crowd just kind of lets me meander throughout my set 
talk to them a little, ask them questions, but not like, what do you do? What's your, you know, not that like the kind of the classic move, but like let them react to certain jokes and why do they react to a certain story or the way that I told it. And then I can kind of find my way through the rest of my set. And I've had sometimes where, you know, I'll go full hours without telling a single joke that I prepared just because the crowd is just really, really into it. And they get it like an experience. And I never thought that that's who I'd be as a comedian. I thought that like I was gonna be a joke writer and like stick to the script type of thing. But like, as I get older and I get more comfortable in my own skin, uh, I get more comfortable on stage and it's kind of led me into that new direction of being able to be super comfortable with no backup plan as much as I am with like sticking to the plan. So I am performing November 19th in Lawrenceville, Georgia. That's where I grew up. I'm super excited to be back home in my hometown of Lawrenceville at Aurora Theater, November 19th. Uh, I'm recording an album next year, going on tour next year in 2023. Those are the things I got coming up in the future, but November 19th is what I'm really excited about to go to Aurora Theater. That place is so awesome. It's gonna be a great time. Mike Albanese and our series, Speaking of Comedy. More information about Albanese is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This weekend, Atlanta Contemporary has an opportunity for women-identifying participants to let it all out in partnership with artist Whitney Bradshaw. The Art Center will host the Outcry Project. Bradshaw, who has been photographing women screaming since 2018, will lead a discussion about the project beginning at noon on Saturday. Then she'll invite volunteers to participate. I'll be facilitating an Outcry Scream session where people who identify as women can engage in unbridled self-expression at maximum volume as an act of defiance against the patriarchy. It's an incredibly powerful exhibition. Scream session slots are limited, and participants must register in advance. More information is at atlanticontemporary.org slash events. Finally, today, WABE will perform maintenance on our radio tower this Sunday between 1 and 6 p.m. During that time, our radio signal may need to be reduced or even switched off. However, all our streaming options will be available. That's on a smart speaker, the WABE app, or online at wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., Chef Deborah Van Tries tells us about two new restaurants she's opened in Atlanta, Aretha's at the Point and Serenidad. Plus... A look at the new documentary, Blood Memory, airing next week on the World Channel as part of the America Reframed series. If you missed part of today's show, 
Like my earlier conversation with photographer and filmmaker Jillian Laub, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.